Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, hello everyone, and welcome. My name is Wendy Stotts, and I am a co-host of the podcast See You on the Other Side, which features paranormal topics and pop culture and uh, original music. And I'm thrilled to be here tonight to interview a, a wonderful Wisconsin woman. She's an author, investigator, and researcher of things that we don't get to talk about just every day. Well, most of us don't. <laughs> um, she's written 18 books on strange creatures, uh, phenomena, and people. And I'm very proud and happy to be here today to talk to Linda Godfrey. Welcome. Thanks, Hannah. Very nice to be here with you, Wendy. Thank you. Audience out here. It's and great. I want to congratulate you on the recent release of your new book, I Know What I Saw. Thank you. <laughs> what a fantastic title, just for starters. I, the second I saw that was the title, I was like, this is going to be good. So many people say those exact words to me, you know, because they're um, often burned out on hearing that they did not see what they saw. And they're like, no, I was there, you weren't there, I saw it, you didn't. And they almost have to fight their way through um, reporting this. And so very often after I've talked to someone, they say, you know, all I wanted was to tell someone who wouldn't think I was crazy. You know, and, yeah. and I'm like, you're not going to hear cra- the word crazy for me, that's no. for sure. <laughs> we find this a lot at paranormal conferences when people come up and they're like, you know, I like coming to these conferences because it feels like a safe place where I can talk about these things that not everybody is willing to necessarily just accept. Yeah, it's like I found my people. Right, <laughs> exactly. And, and we all know how frustrating it is when you're trying to describe something to someone and they're not believing you, you know? It's like, no, I, saw, I know what I saw. I don't necessarily know what it was that I saw, right. but I know what, what I witnessed, and um, it's frustrating. And so it's wonderful that you're a forum for people to be able to come to. And you have so much experience in this field, which we'll, we'll get a little bit more into, but I thought it would be um, nice to start off our discussion if you would be willing to read a passage from the book. Sure, and since um, the, the first thing most people ask me is something like, how did a nice Wisconsin Lutheran girl like you start investigating werewolves? And so I will read a little bit um, that answers that in a more succinct way so I don't start wandering. Um, It's just the first few pages of the introduction of the book, so I'm not going to read all night or anything. But um, the introduction is, which came first, the legend or the beast? And that's really the crux of what I'm trying to get at in this book. And I have a a neat quote from Lauren Coleman. Any of you interested in cryptozoology have probably heard that name. Um, And he wrote, in cryptozoology, we are studying legends. Legends are the smoke above the fire, which kind of goes to say that if so many people are seeing one thing or another, that's the smoke and you know there's a fire somewhere inspiring that. So in December 1991, I trudged for days around a frosty corner of southeastern Wisconsin to interview people who claimed to have seen what they said looked like a fur-covered werewolf on a rural byway known as Bray Road just outside the small city of Elkhorn. And yes, they did say werewolf, and no, that did not send me running for silver bullets. 
Looking into topics of local interest was my job as a reporter for the county's weekly newspaper, The Week, based in Delavan, Wisconsin. So I was trying to keep an open mind. And that wasn't easy. Area residents were saying they had seen what looked like a large wolf, which aren't exactly um, endemic to any part of southern Wisconsin. I'll just throw that in. Walking or running on its hind legs, eating chunks of road-killed animals held in its upturned paws, and generally acting in ways that normal eastern gray wolves were not known to act. Moreover, there hadn't been a known population of wolves breeding in and inhabiting southeastern Wisconsin for many decades. None of it seemed likely. As I listened to stories of encounter after encounter, however, told by what seemed to be sincere and sober citizens, my mind reached for possible explanations of impossible claims. Were eyewitnesses seeing an actual wolf gone bipedal for some odd reason? Most of the alternatives I could conjure up also seemed unlikely. I had heard folk tales of other manimals, such as Maryland's Goat Man, that had supposedly become mutant monsters due to genetic experiments. Folk tales and legends are generally not considered proof of anything, however. There was also speculation that the creature could be something ghostly, more akin to the spectral black hounds of the British Isles than to a Hollywood-style human with fangs and fur. I even had to consider the chance that there was no real creature, no true sightings, just a hoax perpetrated by unknown jokers, perhaps. After all, the long cold winters of the dairy state have been blamed for all sorts of odd behavior among its residents. Certain Wisconsinites have gained notoriety for activities ranging from the sublime to the shocking, from late blooming self-taught artists who spend long evenings by the fire creating visionary sculpture from rusty metal and concrete, to cannibalistic serial killers, Ed Gein of Plainfield and Milwaukee's Jeffrey Dahmer. Admittedly, Gein and Dahmer were motivated by much more than ice and scant daylight, since psychological derangement figured prominently in each case. But the peculiar nature of their crimes was seriously weird, what I call bad weird, as opposed to good weird, in the extreme. After listening to the Bray Road witnesses in person, however, I finally decided that no matter what the origin of the mystery creature sightings, the stories had already spread far enough locally to have reached the campfire tale status. That meant the phenomenon I dubbed the Beast of Bray Road could be considered folklore in the making. I realized I'd been given a rare opportunity to observe and document the birth of a new legend, and I felt obliged to record whatever I found for future reference. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And There's that, a lot more to that. That's just the first couple pages. And that's where it all started, really. Yeah. I find it so fascinating that your adventure, you know, it began with you being a reporter and just mm -hmm. having the story, but your willingness to stay open-minded and to investigate it with the scientific approach and everything has led you down to all the books that you've written and all the research and investigation you've done and expanded beyond just the beast of Ray Road to so many different uh, cryptids and creatures. So I, I love your intro because, you know, I as a Wisconsin native myself, I can just imagine. And I remember actually when the Beast of Bray Road was in the news. Mm -hmm. And that's not the typical thing that you see on the news, <laughs> you know, the nightly news in the Milwaukee area. And, and it's now, there's movies about it. There's, um, there's beers named after it. There's a, there's a heavy metal band in Madison called the Beast of Bray Road. <laughs> so you're the original Beast of Bray Road rock star. So it's just... <laughs> I'm fangirling out a little bit here, but the Beast of Bray Road seems like it was just the tip of the iceberg, and mm -hmm. and then the research that you've done after that, it seems like 
more research begets more stories begets more research. And so um, in the book, you go down several different paths of different types of creatures. And I guess maybe we could start off with the, since the unknown bipedal canine category is, is so near and dear to your heart, uh, I was wondering if there's a certain story or a certain witness that, that stands out to you that is particularly interesting or memorable from that category other than the Beast of Bray Road. <laughs> um, so that you mean a, a witness from back then? From any time at all, really. Oh, okay. There have been lots of really wonderful <laughs> witnesses. Um, I can, and I, I'd be hard-pressed to give my favorite. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Sorry, that's a, that's a tough because one. Because I do stay friends, you know, with a, an, an or, inordinate number of, of witnesses. They're normally just regular good people. Um, you know, I, I'm never afraid to go meet them or anything like that. One of the most extraordinary, um, I think, though, and one of the nicest guys um, was Steve Kruger who was the person, some of you, and this is sort of in, in your hood too, might have remembered the Holy Hill Bear Wolf story. This was in the um, papers quite a bit. And th I think it was back in about, uh, would have been like 2006. And um, Steve Kruger at that time was had a, a literal moonlighting job. He was driving at night around the Holy Hill area, picking up dead deer carcasses for the DNR. He was contracted to do that. If you've ever driven around there, you know how the roads twist around and they're steep. You can see why so many deer get killed out there. And uh, he's a big guy, maybe 6'2", um, something like that, an avid outdoorsman and hunter, and uh, has a lot of other talents. But this is what he was doing for his side job. And he was very close to the main entrance of Holy Hill, which, so anybody who doesn't know where Holy Hill is or, wh or what that is, I'll, I'll describe it quickly. Everybody knows, knows Holy Hill pretty well. So you know, it's, it's lit to provide some light to the area, but it's still pretty dark out there. And it has the, the twin spires and, and um, always makes me think of one of the, the, the Hobbit novels. Um, but anyway, he came across a deer that wasn't on his list. Normally, they would give him a list and then he would just um, go around methodically and pick them up. And if he found one that wasn't on the list, then he had to stop and do a bunch of paperwork. So he's right near the entrance to this beautiful Catholic shrine and um, sees this deer. It's, it's on the small side, 60-pound deer or something like that. And he stops, and um, he pretty easily hoisted it up into the back of his truck, which was already pretty full with deer carcasses in different states of decay, so it, there probably was an odor trailing him around wherever he went, if you want to keep that in mind. And he managed to just fling the deer up onto the pile, and uh, he didn't need, normally he had like a set of metal um, risers that he would put on the back of the truck to kind of slide the bigger ones in, but he didn't need that, so that wasn't there. And he went around and he had so there was a, a, a faint light coming from the shrine. He had his um, back end of the truck lit up with a big light. He had a cab light on. He had one, he had like a stop uh, yellow flashing light on the top. And then he had his dash light. So it was pretty well lit. He could see what was going on. And he's sitting there writing and he said all of a sudden he felt this big like like a big wind or something had hit the truck. And he's like, what? You know, it was perfectly still. There was no wind, there was no bad weather. And he kind of shrugged it off and went back to writing. And there was a second, like that. And then he heard 
a bang kind of sound and a thump. And he looked in the gigantic rearview mirror that he had in the front of the truck and he saw this thing reaching in. Its forelimb was extended into the rotting mass of deer flesh, if you can imagine. And it seemed to be grabbing at the one he had just thrown on. Sorry for the very colorful <laughs> description, but you know that's what it was. Um, so it and it had its forelimb extended, and he said it didn't look like any animal's forelimb, really. You know, he said he was expecting it to be something like a bear, but it was too thin for a bear. It had claws that weren't like a bear's, and his eyes moved up and he saw its head. And he said the head was like a wolf. But then it did have this sort of big bear body. And yet he knew it wasn't a bear because it had pointy ears on top of its head, which also ruled out Bigfoot. And uh, it was covered with fur. And you laugh, but there's a, a point to the story with that part too. Um, so that fact that he could not identify this thing was what frightened him. Because he's an outdoorsman, you know, lived in outdoors Wisconsin his whole life and he said for the life of him he, he had this Rolodex flipping inside his brain trying to think what animal it could be and he couldn't come up with one and at that point he, he said just automatic fear took over he stepped on the gas and just flew out of that spot where he'd been and as he pulled away he heard two sounds which I had already described one was the um, the sharp thunk and the other was the, was the, well, I'll just say it was a thump and a clunk, to be easy. And um, he knew just what they were. One was one of those trailer ramps that w had fallen down, and the other one was that deer, the newly acquired deer that only weighed 60 pounds. They were both, had, they both had been taken off of the back of that truck. So he went as fast as he could, so he finally came to an intersection, stopped and thought about it. You know, he's pa panting, breathing hard. He didn't seem to have been followed. He's looking you know, backwards behind him and in the rear view mirror. He still had all his lights on. And then he starts thinking, because he's not a rich guy. He's got a family and he's thinking, well, boy, I really need that metal ramp in case I get a big deer. And he somehow summoned up the courage to go back there. And the ramp was gone and the deer carcass was gone. There was not a sign of either one anywhere. And that's when he knew he was dealing with something really unusual. And being the good, upstanding citizen that he is, he went to the county sheriff and told him what he saw. And all he had to say was, um, something standing upright with fur, and they wrote down Yeti. <laughs> he never said the word Yeti. He never said Bigfoot or Sasquatch or anything like that. But that's what they wrote on the report. Hmm. So then early the next morning, when all of the, the newspaper scanners are looking for something juicy to put on the paper, they come across this and they make it a Bigfoot, which wasn't true. So a lot of people thought it was, oh, just another one of those Bigfoot stories. But um, within a couple of days, there were people from all over the place. Um, I had been contacted, so I was out there. Um, there was uh, this, he's not around anymore, I don't think, but there used to be this man that just was kind of sponsored by somebody and flown all over the place and had his own um, Bigfoot finding bus. He was there. Um, everybody was just kind of looking at where this had occurred and trying to find stuff. And um, I found a, a, a tracker um, who lived right there who had seen the footprints this thing left. And they were like very large wolf prints. And they led into a swamp 
where they did, he lost it at that point. So somebody had seen footprints that Steve Cougar didn't see. And um, I actually uh, did a stakeout right there. There was a hillside. And I did a stakeout with a deer hunter and with that tracker. And of course, you ne when you're staking out, you never see anything. They know you're there, whatever, whatever it is, whether it's a known or an unknown animal. And so um, there was quite a, quite a bit of, uh, of um, oh, no, excitement, I, I should say. And Steve Kruger ended up on several um, pretty good TV documents. I, I think the best one was um, the Sean, Sean Hannity show. He just sent his brother out, one, one person and a cameraman, to do the whole thing. And they did a very unadorned, very unexploited story straight shot of this uh, incident and it was it was really uh, good to see you know it had all the parts in it you could see Holy Hill and everything else and I think that was probably one of the best ones that ever been made portraying mm -hmm. that but um, he Steve Kruger like many many people was very um, impressed by this and it changed his life in a lot of ways he kind of cut back from the other jobs he'd been doing and he turned to cartooning he developed a cartoon about wildlife Sometimes there'd be a Bigfoot in there. And um, also started a sportsman's magazine that I think is still going on. And I hear that that really is an amazing thing to me. And it fills me with a lot of, um, oh, I, I feel like I really owe these people to do the best that I can because it means so much to many of the people that have these experiences. And they'll just say, I never looked at life the same after that. And whether it's Bigfoot or an upright canine or um, a giant bird or anything else, when you see something that you know is not like anything else in this world, um, it just changes your whole view of what life really is. Wow, that's fascinating. I think it's interesting too how how often people jump to the Bigfoot conclusion. You know, it's a big hairy beast, so therefore it must be the Yeti. You know, and. In this book, you have so many examples of different non-Bigfoot, um, or at, at least the way they're described, because what really is Bigfoot anyway? <laughs> right. But um, so you've got a lot of the, with, with the upright unknown canines, such as the Beast of Bray Road, but then you venture into the werewolf territory. And I thought that was really interesting because you mentioned all the commonalities of where people see werewolves. And, and there are, uh, it's neat because you have the uni unique perspective of so many witnesses and so many reports, which actually I wanted to ask you about, how do you document all of these? I mean, how do you keep track of the, there must be just dozens and dozens of reports coming into you. Yeah, it, well, my, my desk and my office are um, a messy horror. <laughs> they're, they're a horror scene in themselves. <laughs> I do file things. I try to file things um, by place that it happened. Um, if there's something really unusual, you know, I'll give it its own name. You know, like Steve Kruger's had the Holy Hill Werewolf. It, it had to be that, or Bearwolf, one or the other. By the way, Bearwolf is something that I did not make up. That came from a hunting road um, near. I think it's Eau Claire. I may I may have that wrong, but one of those northern northern uh, cities. Um, and the people there were saying out on a certain road there were wolves that looked like bears. And they were even, people in town were even calling this road Bear Wolf Road, although it had its own name. So yeah, so that's something I didn't did I not. love the names though. Yeah, then like was the Bat Squatch. 
That's that yours? Right. No, that great. was that came from um, a young man in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. But it's one of the best cryptid names ever, Bat Squatch. <laughs> and you can totally picture, you know, yeah. the the hairy beast with wings, just. Yes. Yeah. He, and it was blue. He he said it was blue, which is a strange thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the young man, but he had really good character testimonials and that sort of thing. The one that I myself personally investigated, I the best I could come up with was Man Bat. Oh, I like that. Because I couldn't use Batman, yeah. you know, that's trademarked. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, Bat Squatch is, is good too, but this one, it, it wasn't quite Squatch-like, it was more like a flying um, canine of some type, mm. and that was in Lacrosse. Um, I'm going to again say around 2006 that it happened, and um, I received a call, and there was a man and his uh, younger son, the man was in his 50s, the, the son was in his 30s, and they were both in uh, some kind of a band, and they had music practice that night, and they were going, heading north to their rural home, and something came flying at the windshield of their truck. And it was dark, the, whatever was flying at their truck was dark. It was dark outside too, but they had headlights on their, on their truck. And they were both convinced that it was gonna smash into their windshield. And when it got up really close, they got even more terrified because it was so much bigger than they had guessed at first. And it was, they just figured it was going to take out the whole cab and the windshield and them and everything. And instead, as soon as it was almost ready to smash into them, it emitted this high piercing scream sound and just went straight up. Now, I can testify to how this is possible to happen because um, last week one day I was taking a walk near my house, near the Greenbelt, the Janesville, and I saw something red flash out of my eyes. There was a, a male um, cardinal coming straight for me, and I thought it was sure it was gonna smash straight into my head. That's how close it was before I saw it. I didn't have time to react or do anything. You know, I just thought, I didn't even have time to shut my eyes. And what I saw was this winged thing coming straight at me and then went straight up. It didn't emit any piercing, you know, cries, but... Um, Did a 90 degree turn. It, yeah, something <laughs> like that. It, it was just, and I thought, well, this must be how those people in the, in the truck, you know, that encountered the, the man bat felt, except, you know, theirs was a hundred times worse. And uh, that was another one that um, I was able to be there within a couple of days, went with the witnesses to the places, and we trudged around some other spots. There's some really creepy places around the La Crosse area. Oh, there, yes. there, there really are. There, I, there was one that I, I think was possibly a cougar stalking us at the time. It was the only thing I could oh come gosh. up with. Yeah, uh, We were out of the car, and there's a place called Ghost Road that um, Perfect. the locals don't go. Yeah, and of course, where else would we be? The weirdest thing that I'll, I don't think I have this in, in a book, maybe just as a brief footnote, but um, we were exploring that ghost road and there was nothing on it either side. No crops, no houses, no anything. It was nighttime. And we're driving along and something huge comes. We can hear, we had the windows partly down. Um, this, it's barreling at us from this field. And when I say barreling, we could tell because it was something big, heavy, wasn't bipedal, it was, you know, multiple legs moving, and we slowed down because we didn't want to hit whatever it was. And suddenly, on the road in front of us is this beautiful horse. It was kind of a, a reddish brown, and it ran right in, onto the road, right in front of our car. Um, my, friend, my friend Terry 
who is a book reviewer, was driving. And uh, she's like, should I stop? Should I keep going? Should I try and get around it? And it just stopped, and it turned its head and looked at us, which was really weird. And um, we didn't know what to do exactly, so we were just kind of looking and trying to think if we should try and find an owner. But was it something that got out of its stable? And um, it turned back around and started trotting up the road instead of going across the field again. And we could see um, its tail was braided. It didn't have any, you know, saddle or, any, or bit or anything like that on it. Otherwise, just the, the braided tail. And it cantered down the road, and we just followed it very slowly for maybe a mile. And then it took off again in the field the other way. Now, it was just so weird. I, I do have a photograph of the, the rear end of that horse. <laughs> and you can see his tail is braided. Um, you know, but sometimes when you're chasing the strange, you just find more strangeness than you ever could have dreamed was there. And uh, that's really kind of what, one of the things that's kept me at it is. That's cool. I'm, I'm curious by nature, and when there are things that, you know, you're, you go, you're going to try and test out hypotheses about what's there, and then just all this other weird stuff gets <laughs> thrown at you. It reminds me of the quote, I think, I think it's credited to John Tenney, what you think is weird is weirder than you think. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like something he would say. Yeah, and it seems to be true in my experience researching things as well. Right. Um, the horse makes me think of a chapter that I found really interesting because I hadn't heard many stories. Um, now, the, now, the bipedal, the upright, unknown canine ones, that's such a visual you can picture that werewolf, you know, braying at the moon. But there's so many stories I couldn't believe of the dogs that were um, people driving and a dog that's, they would report the size of a horse or bigger mm -hmm. or, you know, as tall as their minivan, just basically a giant sized dog. There were so many of those stories. I thought that was really intriguing. And you're talking of the dire dogs. Yes. The dire dogs, which is such a great name for it too, because it just, it's perfect in every way. <laughs> and you probably haven't ever heard that name because I made it up. Uh, in the course of this book because um, I didn't know what else to call these things. Most of these were not bipedal. They were quadrupeds, and I was calling them quads for short for a long time. And um, I started receiving those way back in the early 90s. It wasn't something that just came up recently, but it'd be just every now and then, and I didn't really know what to do with them because I wasn't sure they fit under the dogman category, but as, as you said, they were large. That was one of the weird things. And, and people would use the same terms over and over again, either a mini horse, a Shetland pony, or a, a bull calf. What was, because they said they, they were not only um, you know, high up from the ground, and usually they'd say their, their shoulders would be level with the top of the driver's door with the window rolled down. You know. So that's pretty big. And they also didn't look exactly like wolves. They had, some had different appearances. Um, what they did seem to have in common is that they were very sturdily built. Uh, most of them had bigger than normal heads. Um, they had teeth. When the teeth were visible, they would be jagged and weird looking. And sometimes they had kind of a primitive rough on the back of their necks, kind of like, kind of like hyenas do. And also sort of like hyenas, they were sometimes described as having front legs longer than the back legs. Not always. But um, after a while, like the last couple of years, I started getting such a pile of them that I realized they were a separate category. Not a species, not a type, not a type, but a separate category of unknown canine creatures. And these all had um, 
they, they weren't like wispy things. They were solid, and they seemed to be obsessed with chasing people's cars. Um, I have one at home that I haven't published yet, but it's going to be going in soon, of um, some who had one, was I think two people in the car, two or three, and they had one of these creatures come running after them. They saw it come running. It caught up with the car. It was going the same speed that the car was, and it was apparent that it was trying to ram the car off the road and managed to get it headed into the ditch, and they somehow righted it and got it back on the street and got back out of there. So um, I started thinking what I could call these things. And they reminded me sort of of the descriptions of dire wolves, which were real animals. There are several thousand uh, skeletons available for us to look at in the La Brea area of Southern California, but they were spread all over too. But they had these large heads with the big jaws made for crunching bones. And they, they weren't as huge as um, the, the recent TV show uh, would, would have you believe where they all, you, know, you probably know which one I'm thinking of, where they, they're all um, owning their own uh, dire wolves. Um, dire wolves were maybe, um, it's estimated now, up to, at the max, only 25% larger than the big eastern gray wolves, which can be um, six to seven feet long, the largest of them. I've got a picture at home of, of one that was uh, killed around the 1900s, and, and it measured uh, seven feet tall when they, when they hung it up. So eastern gray wolves can be very big, especially, uh, you know, formerly. And, and these were um, different. They, they, the, the gray wolves look like wolves. You know, they've got the graceful, skinny legs. These had powerful legs, thick necks, and um, they, just, they just had their own personality with this chasing the cars and bumping them. And so I thought, well, since they, they had the diversity of dogs, because, you know, dogs can look almost like anything. And sometimes they'd have a shorter snout. Sometimes they'd have... Um, ears that flop forward instead of being on top of the, the head. So I thought I had good reason to think of them as dogs. And so I thought, well, dire dogs fit the bill. So that's, that's why, they Very got, perfect. why they got that name. Yeah, and somebody else may say, that's a terrible name, and rename it themselves. Exactly. And that's fine, you know, because I'm, I'm not, you know, some um, scientist that can invent a new genus or, or family of, of creatures. But it just seemed to work with what I was observing from reports. It's great language for us to be able to communicate, you know, if somebody sees what fits into that category. Right. And to be able to say, you know, it's it's not a I saw a diagram. man. Right, exactly. And I do, there was oh, that's one. that's right, yeah. Yeah, I marked this place because if we got around to this, um, I thought I might read a little bit, a report from somebody, uh, it's called The Dire Dog of Milwaukee. And this was a little bit different than the other ones. Um, and it happened in 2015, so not that long ago. And it was uh, mid-fall, 2015. Um, the witness asked that her name be withheld. Um, and she wrote, this happened on Monday evening, November 2nd. My boyfriend and I were walking our dog along the lake in Bayview Park in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was about 10 p.m. We didn't encounter anyone else out walking that night, but I had a very strange feeling, which was out of the ordinary because I walk in that park every day. Um, my son lives in a place where he can walk in that park every day, and sometimes he walks the dog there too, so uh, it's sort of personal to me. I was raised to never ignore feelings like that, and I was uncomfortable enough that I insisted we more we walk more quickly so we could exit the wooded area. I actually have goosebumps now as I write this. 
Anyway, there's a staircase leading up from the lake trail to the trail at the top part of, of the park. Anybody know where that staircase is? Have you seen it? Yeah. Um, there's a bluff along that entire stretch, which is very tall, more than 100 feet, very steep, nearly a, one, neither, nearly a 90 degree angle, but it's not very wide. You don't often see deer or any animals besides squirrels on that side of the park because there isn't enough coverage for them. Anyway, as we were exiting the wooded area, there suddenly appeared a rather large animal in front of us. It was about 30 feet away from where we were standing, but there was a street light directly behind it, so we got a fairly good look. I was surprised to see such a large animal over there due to my description above of the terrain. At first glance, I thought it was a deer due to its size and shape. It was thin. This is a little bit different. Thin, gaunt, and had spindly long legs. It was on all four legs, not upright but it also had a hunched or arched back and appeared to be moving very awkwardly. I know it was not a coyote because it was substantially larger and did not resemble one anyway. The shape was very distinct, especially against the light. We'd clearly startled it. It ran out onto the path from the woods and continued up the path in front of us until it ran back into the woods. It was probably only a 10 second encounter. However, the way that it moved was very disconcerting. It appeared disoriented and was more of a stumbling canter than a run also appeared to continue looking at us as it did so. I'm trying to think of a way to describe how it moved because that was definitely the most disturbing part. Imagine an inebriated dog trying to pick up a slippery toy and run at the same time. Anyway, the uncomfortable feeling I had leading up to this encounter suddenly washed over me like a wave. I immediately was filled with an inexplicable feeling of terror. It's not something I'm used to. It didn't feel right. I was extremely uncomfortable and immediately knew we shouldn't be there. We crossed the street, headed home, but we had to walk along the top of the bluff where we saw it to get there. I could sense that it was still over there across the street and that it definitely was aware of our location. So that was, and she did, she did take her dog out after um, a, a time of, uh, had passed where she wasn't quite as afraid. And she realized that the sighting spot had occurred directly across the street from St. Francis Seminary Wood Seminary. And some of you may have heard there's a legend of the, um, the monk that was buried there long ago. It's, it's pretty well known. Um, that I believe is in Weird Wisconsin book. Um, so it's supposed to be haunted. And it also shows that many of the sightings of all types of these animals happen at sacred places or cemeteries. Also, military installations are another place that um, people don't realize until they go and look around it. I always try to go to a map and find what human and geological and geographical artifacts are surrounding each sighting. And you'd be surprised how many of these things turn up. And uh, it also was um, in a straight line with a couple of other sightings. There was another one at the, uh, is it Rainbow Springs Park? I think that's what it's called that a woman had late at night. And then from there, it was only a straight hop going west to the place of one of the very best cryptid names that I, I and I can't take credit for this one, <laughs> the Haunchies. Oh, oh yes. I hope we can come back to that, because sure, I really want to talk to you about that. Definitely come back to the Haunchies. <laughs> but I mean, you know, how, it, it's right up there with Bat Squatch. So, <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah the Haunchies uh, are near and dear to our hearts, because right. my co-host, Mike Huberty and his sister, Allison Jornlin, grew up very near to right Haunchyville. Yeah. And I remember when I first met Mike, one of the things that we kind of bonded our friendship over was he, he told me the story about Haunchyville. Right. And, and the interesting thing is, 
lots of times people ask me if, if ley lines are related to any of these things. And ley lines are, they're not the same as the um, geographical lines that are drawn on, on the globe. Some people mistake it for that. They just, they're straight lines that link places of power. And so you've got this straight length going uh, from the, the, the Waterside Park to um, the Rainbow Springs Park straight on to the supposed Haunchies Village. Wait, so when you say places of power, do you mean like sacred Pla sites? Most or? Of places that have been considered sacred sites okay. over the years. And um, that whole part of Milwaukee, there were a lot, lot, lot of the ancient animal-shaped effigy mounds all around um, the, the lakes yeah. um, near Milwaukee and, and going up to Lake Michigan. Just many of them were destroyed, unfortunately. But mm, yeah, but yeah, lots. Um, Linda, one of the really neat things that I love about your book is that your original artwork is peppered throughout the book, and I think it's so great that you have that visual talent and ability <laughs> to Thanks. communicate these things um, in the form of drawings. And there was one, well, uh, that you had a map that you had. I think it might have been from the Hillsborough. Oh, uh, that, yeah, probably is, yeah. Where you had she nicely drawn out where you could see that there was almost like a circle of where all these incidents were occurring, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting, you know, to be able to geographically. Yeah, it's about um, an 18-mile radius Wow. from S the city of, of Hillsborough. So maybe we could venture into that category next because we've kind of talked a little bit about the dogs and the wolves, right. but um, there's some feline. <laughs> Feeling feline, that's right. Yes, <laughs> all right. like to headline it. Well, this is about an animal that is not um, unknown. It, it's a known animal, but it has aspects that are unknown. And that would be the uh, mountain lion, which at one time covered most of the Western Hemisphere. They were in Canada, they were all over the U.S., they were um, south of, of our borders. And, uh, yeah, that, that shows it. And um, they were around the late 1800s and early to the early 1900s. They were systematically um, killed and um, just done away with so that there were virtually none left that we knew of in the Midwestern states. The few that were left were kind of pushed down southwestern, um, southwesternly directions to be down in the west of Texas and um, Arizona down in that area. So there weren't supposed to be any of them around here at all. And there have been some walking through that are announced er, and believed by the DNR to be um, wanderers from the Black Hills. And that's, that's true. They can trace them uh, by DNR found from their droppings and that, and that sort of thing. So, and there was one that would probably have come down, actually two of them that would have come down through Milwaukee. One of them made it all the way out to Connecticut in 2011 where it was killed by a car. But there aren't supposed to be great numbers of them. And about, um, oh, maybe seven or eight years ago, a newspaper editor and writer in Hillsborough, Wisconsin, which is not a very large place. It's west of Baraboo. Um, one of my grandmothers lived in town there and was a school teacher. My other grandmother uh, lives still within that eight mile, 18 mile radius um, near Wilton. So I had family ties to this place. Well. This gentleman, Steve Stanick, um, saw some of my books and he got hold of me and said, hey, you should hear about all of these mountain lines. And I said, all of them? Well, how many have you got there? And he said, well, by my count, just the witnesses that I've talked to, and I know there's more of them 
over the past couple of decades, um, over 150. That's a lot. That's really, really a lot. When you consider mountain lions are animals that need, the males need a 30-mile radius just to themselves in order to live their, their lifestyles. And he said, when here's, here's what people have trouble with. Over half of them are black. And black furred, the technical name is melanistic, mountain lions are not supposed to exist. And he, had, he has his own theory that um, when they were pushed back down into the southwest, that they met up with jaguars, which can be black furred, um, maybe even an occasional um, black leopard, and that they mated and that somehow um, either that or the, the black jaguars moved up to where Hillsborough is. Why Hillsborough? Because it looks where it looks like a place where mountain lions should live. It has block, uh, blocks and blocks of, of uh, rocky bluffs. It has deep valleys, uh, lots of tree cover, beautiful rolling landscape. That's one reason uh, the Amish families have moved in there. They have a huge population. In fact, um, Amish live on my grandmother's former farm uh, by Wilton. So this is amazing because uh, uh, Again, this is one of the areas where the most people have said, I know what I saw. Mm. You know, and I even have a retired um, sheriff's deputy who saw up close a black-colored big cat and was told by his superiors, no, you didn't see that. You saw a house cat. You didn't see any kind of larger cat. Um, one of our witnesses, uh, to, to make a long tale sh short, a long tale, no pun intended, <laughs> um, they do have massive tails. It's one easy way to recognize them. Um, I started working with him and soon realized it, this was a really great thing to do a documentary movie on. So I've been over there a lot. Um, we have a tra uh, trailer um, that you can go and see, two and a half minute trailer, and we hope to have the whole thing done um, by mid-fall at least. Is, is that trailer online? Yes, the trailer is online. Okay. You can go to uh, either to YouTube or to Facebook and just put in a search for Return to Wildcat Mountain. Cool. This area even has an already named Wildcat Mountain. It's <laughs> been there, it was named that in settlers, settlers days. I mean, it's just perfect. And um, that's, so that's kind of the, the, the really strange thing. But beyond that, um, we're trying to dig into this idea of the, uh, the black mystery panthers. And again, they're not supposed to be called panthers because black panthers aren't supposed to exist either. But um, I've had two different people. One was a Native American. Um, the other was uh, someone, the, a law enforcement who was talking to someone related to a Native American who had received this tale. And they both said, and they didn't know each other. They're in different, different states. Um, they both said that the black ones, the tan ones are just normal animals. The black ones are spirit animals. And so um, I don't have any way to verify that, but that's a general belief. And uh, however, in Hillsborough, they're seen just as much, if not more. Our last sighting was in early March of this year. And it was one of the town barbers was standing on his back porch. He lives on the city limits and saw a black fur-covered big cat crossing his yard. It was only about 20 feet from him. It was daylight. He had a perfect view of it. And he has two other house cats, two house cats that also prowl around there, though they were not wisely had gone somewhere else at that time. But he said, you know, he, he knows how big his house cats are compared to bushes and things in his yard, and he knows how big this was. 
So, and he knows uh, what he saw. He knows what he saw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I've I've been going back and forth lending him my trail cam. I'm hoping we'll get super super lucky. And oh, that'd be great. Yeah, because they, this is the one other thing. The scientists, if you read scientific books on these mm -hmm. creatures, they call them ghost cats, both the tan and the black ones, because they're so elusive. Mm -hmm. So when you've got, and they don't mean literal ghosts, but you know they're willing to go there that far with the name. That's unusual for any sort of official type of, of uh, publication. They're elusive. Uh, the saying goes, you don't see any type of a puma or a cougar or a mountain lion unless they want you to see them and it's too late. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and that's true. And it's kind of interesting. Once you start looking, there are lots of references to black panthers in the northern forests of the Midwest. And in fact, um, how many of you are familiar with Laura Ingalls' Little House series? Oh. You all probably know that. There's an episode where Grandpa's going through the woods at night and a black panther jumps on the horse with him. And they have a struggle and he just barely makes it back to the, the little house. And you know, little house wouldn't lie. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they are about this because there, I have another one about um, one jumping off a tree onto a horse in the modern times. Oh yeah, that was, yeah, a good story. So, <laughs> so cats, dogs, wolves, one of the things that I found really fascinating was so many of the stories include creatures that kind of morph from one thing to another. Are you talking about the really, truly strange animal story? Which one? Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, well, I am. <laughs> now, these, I, I want to mention that these stories are not just put all higgledy-piggledy in there. I don't know where that one comes from, but it's a, it's a good one. They're, they're, not, they're not just thrown in there. What I, my assignment was and what I was trying to do was to go back and revisit some of the er earliest civilizations' um, ideas that of of similar things that were unknown creatures. Very often they were um, animal humanoid type things. Like for instance, um, the Sumerians had something very much like bat squatch or man bat. Bat. They called it Pazuzu. It was supposed to be um, one of their god pantheon and could, could get extremely nasty and it was a super large bird with big wings outspread, very much like it. That was thousands of years ago and yet we have people still seeing basically the same thing. Um, you go to the Egyptians and one of their um, most well-known and, and popular is Anubis, which was the all-black furred, um, pointy ears on top of the head, humanoid uh, jackal and had to do with death and taking people down to to um, be judged for for their lives on earth that kind of thing so we still have people and people will very often describe what they see as reminding them of Anubis there were three um, naval guards at the North Chicago naval naval base that saw what they described as this it was by a cemetery as usual the and sacred grounds and um, she, the woman who, one of them was a woman, and she wrote to me and said there was just no other way for me to see it than as Anubis. It looked just like it. So you go thousands of, of years back again to the ancient Egyptians, and we have contemporary people still seeing these same things. Um, the witchy wolf story. Oh, that's good. You know, um, that's one that I really, I went to Michigan and really did some digging at their historical center. And, and uh, received some documents about it that hadn't been shown. And this was a thing that um, was supposed to be a Native American legend. They were said to be, the, when you go to um, 
Omer, Michigan. It's surrounded. It's a flat area surrounded by pines that are said to whistle at night, and the whistling is often attributed to animal spirits and guardians guarding the place. And um, there's a little bit more to it than that. I discovered that the legend actually goes back to Civil War days, and at that time, uh, one of the young men that went off to war came back. Um, you know, it was he, he hadn't. Well, when you have a body for a long time and it's not embalmed, you know, you don't have a lot to it. So um, they, they were all very distressed. They didn't feel they could bury it properly. They waited till spring. Um, they ha had him sort of semi-interred in this little cemetery. And, and they went out to the cemetery to clean in the spring. And this would have been um, back early in, in the uh, 1900s. And um, they found the place and they started digging and this she-wolf jumped out at them from the, where the grave was supposed to be and she had cubs in there and she started howling and other wolves started approaching and of course the people were very very scared went back to their town I thought well this is easy to see you know it's a made-up legend and yet I started looking up the people's names the wonderful thing about having the internet is you can find just about anything and almost every in fact every name that I looked up was somebody who lived there at that time and even had the occupations. There was one that was an undertaker, there was one that did this, did that. So the people matched up perfectly. And I even looked up the young soldier and I found out he died in a southern um, war camp from what they called, uh, there's two pronunciations, scorbitus or scorbutus. And nowadays we know that is scurvy. They, they died from lack of vitamin C and that was his official cause of death on this young soldier's uh, grave. So. So I started thinking, well, you know, where, how do you draw the line? I, and I really think that um, this is kind of a half and half, where there were real things, real people, and then somebody with a talent for writing kind of spun them into something else. Because um, there were more documents. There were two more documents that were supposed to have been written around the 1960s by um, somebody else who had uh, kind of a fun, he signed it with sort of a funny pun sort of name, so I knew. He wasn't on the up and up, but supposedly there were, um, what it had turned into in the 50s and 60s was one of these legends where teenagers are sitting in their cars just oh so politely with one another on, on their dates. And um, it, this is the classic monster trope where there's always necking teenagers and the monster comes to the window and, and then they shriek and then the guys get out and the guys are killed. And this was what was supposed to have happened. There were two couples out. Um, at the Omer, on the Omer Plains in the flat park where they used to uh, do the parking and um, they did not come back and the girls somehow made it back to town and um, nobody ever found any evidence of the two boys and the names again were real so but I couldn't find anything like an obituary or anything official about it you know there's all it's like there's a, the joker the trickster is always in there giving you just enough to lead you on but not enough to really settle the deal, you know. Yep. So then the one thing that happened was, I guess these boys were deer hunters, and another hunter found one of their bu belt buckles, which was engraved with his initials, <laughs> you know. And of course, there's no belt buckle at, at the museum to see, but so you, it, whoever did this forces you to um, do a little of your own homework and then put your own belief where you think that it belongs. Because there's there's no yeah. way there's no way to prove or disprove it. Right, and I want to applaud you for the research that you do and the fact that you do go down every path and I you know try. you go to the it's, it's 
I really appreciate that because Thanks. tales get spun, like you said. And if you have that little thread where you can say, like, okay, th this name, this was an actual person who lived here. This reporter, right. you know, at the time, they're, they're not going to tell a story about someone, <laughs> an actual person, you know, unless there's something behind it. So whatever right. that is. Yeah, and the haunchies is kind of like that, too. They seem on... Thank you for coming back to the haunchies. Oh, yeah. I, I knew you wanted that. I wanted to make sure we weren't uh, leaving it out here. Um, yeah, the haunchies, if you're from the Milwaukee area, may, again, many of you have probably heard of it. And the haunchies are supposed to be, um, I like to use the term small humans, um, people who entertained in a circus at, at one time. And supposedly, as it goes, um, they came to this lane, this road called Mystic Lane. That's the real name of this road. And once, you know, how did it... It's so perfect, did, again, like yeah, Ghost Road. <laughs> it is, yeah, Ghost Road. And they, sometimes these names have legends in them and are hints to that there are legends. Well, this was at a time when the circuses had started to break up, and it is a fact that there had been circus colonies where the circuses would winter over all across um, the Midwest and especially some of the eastern states. And uh, there are legends about uh, small humans with different nicknames. There's one, there's one that's out in um, New Jersey that the guys who wrote the Weird, New, Weird U.S., Weird New Jersey books um, write about extensively. And there's another one um, that's a little, like they're like little uh, communes almost in Florida. Um, and then there's this one called the Haunchies off Big Muskego Lake. And they have similar legends. And that's how you can tell an urban legend. It's the same thing happening with different people in different places. You know, and I could name you half a dozen of those. But um, in this case, the legend that goes with, and, and to me, it's very likely that there were circus people that um, chose to stop working and make a living there because I know of another such colony on Delavan Lake, near, not very far away from that, maybe 25 miles at the most, where that is what um, happened. And there were circuses that overwintered in Wisconsin. Um, I used to live, my husband and I lived in Delavan Lake uh, the first few years we were married. And um, there were all kinds of little dead ends. If you drove around the south side of that lake particularly, there were two circus brothers who bought the big um, resort, Lake Lawn Lodge, and owned it for quite a while. And they gained notoriety for, um, they had a lot of, uh, the ancient animal-shaped effigy mounds, they still do on the golf course there. You can go there and, and, and see what's left of those. But they dug a couple of them out, and there were, there were several very large skeletons in there. There were some um, average height people of the time, Native Americans, and then there were these ones that were like eight feet long. They had double rows of teeth. Um, the New York Times had an article on it, but they got it kind of wrong. Um, I had the advantage of talking to the town historian who had the the documents, you know, but so that was all going on there. And I had a friend who um, remembered always going to this one little special place by Delavan Lake that nobody else knew about. There were houses that she wasn't supposed to tell anything about them, and they always went to the house of this woman named Auntie. They called her Auntie. They didn't know her real name. And Auntie baked the most wonderful cookies. And what my friend remembers is sitting in her chair, taking one of Auntie's cookies and looking down and seeing that Auntie's feet were completely covered with thick brown fur and that her toenails looked like claws. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah, so <laughs> so there there is this history and in also in the the um, Florida place and in New Jersey there were overwintering circuses in those places too. 
and out by Muskego Lake and Evansville, not very far mm -hmm. from here, also had a very famous one, Dr. Uh, Dr. Hall. He was known as uh, Popcorn Hall because he was one of the first people to think of, of selling popcorn at a oh, circus. Oh, bless him. Yes, a wonderful <laughs> hero that we all worship, yes. Um, he also had a black leopard escape from his place, and that's another, that's one excuse that people give ah. for seeing these creatures. And they'll say, well, they never really get away. The animals never really escape from those circuses. But this one did. It got out, it climbed a tree, they got a posse of local people and had it treed, and it finally jumped down and uh, landed on one of the farmers and mauled him pretty well before he was able to be, be shot. But So these things do, do everything people say can't happen, does happen in my experience. And have you ever heard any reason behind the name Haunchy? I, I, I haven't, you know, and I keep looking and asking people, and I've, I've spoken several times over at the Muskego uh, public library, and we always have a good discussion on that. But I didn't tell you the actual legend. I'll just, I'll just, and and with that, maybe some of you can see a relationship as to um, you know why that was happening. But the legend was that if you went down Mystic Lane and you found their little enclave where there were supposed to be like little houses, um, sh just set to be the right size for these people, that um, they w they would send out a black pickup truck driven by an average-sized man with a big rifle. And he would shoot at you, warn you to get out of there, and if you didn't, then the cornfield would come alive with all these little people with armed with like spades and rakes and hoes, and they would come chasing you down the road and, and chase you out of there. And there were, it went on, there was more, there was a man who supposedly got in and um, they killed him in the barn and his shadow is still on the barn, you know, that kind of thing. And I heard that he let in blood there was writing that said the haunchies made me do it or yeah. something like that. <laughs> and it's weird, and I've got both of these in the book because I've had letters from people who live there swearing that they knew it was true, that they went there, that they saw them. Other letters from just equally well written saying no, it's a big bunch of hogwash, it's not true, nobody ever saw such a thing, you know, and so how do you differentiate yeah. between them? I really do think that, you know, it's a mixture of urgent legend with a good solid kernel of truth mm. because there we all know there were lots of small humans playing in in the circuses and they had to go somewhere and would you want to be around all the people who made fun of you or have your own nice little resort area you know they wanted their own quiet and privacy to me that's what makes perfect sense um, about those stories. and so I think again it's it's like a half and half and this whole book I've tried to when, when they um, commissioned me to do it I was thinking okay this will be just like each one of these things is a ball of yarn made of different colors of yarn. And what I'll do is I'll take each ball and unroll it all the way, and then I'll see all the parts and I can see which are real and which are not. And it was more like taking a bag of, of balls of yarn that you started unrolling it and then you find it was too tight in a knot, and then something went out from there, and then there was a big squirrely mess that you couldn't get apart, <laughs> you know. And that's really what it's what yeah. it's turned into. But yet it makes some sense, and I do like it that a lot of these have this kernel of historic truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, definitely. Because it means, you know, we're not all completely psychotic making up all these crazy animals. And and the weird thing is, why do all of us see the same animals over and over again, you know? Yeah, it really That's, is interesting. If you think about that, um, supposedly, and I, I've done some reading and research, and supposedly there's nothing, there's no such thing as a truly shared hallucination or a crowd hallucination. You know, single, but, and even, People will say, well, you know, it's just somebody who had, you know, like a couple of six packs and they were drunk. 
And I always ask my audience, how many of you ever got drunk and saw a strange animal <laughs> from being drunk? Okay. Usually you pass out. Anyone? You know, but I've never had anybody you know, say, no. say that they had. And I had one guy who admitted that he saw, he was one of the Beast of Bray Road, um, he was a farmer who lived on the Beast, on the, say, on Bray Road, and he said, I saw it, he said, and I'll admit that I was drunk, you know, when I saw it running along, he said, but when I saw it, I sobered up really fast. <laughs> well, stayed sober. It almost gives him more credibility, the fact that he's willing to admit, you know, right. he was drunk and then, as opposed to someone else coming out with it later, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure, you saw it, yeah. <laughs> you know. Exactly. But yeah, that would definitely sober, sober one up quickly, I would right. think. Exactly, and you know, and the people who have done that are often really willing to admit that. One, that really super weird, freakish one where, a man was out walking his two Sharpay puppies and he saw this beautiful dog. And the dog shapeshifted. It went up in the air and somehow the next thing he knew it was mating with his dog. And his dog got pregnant and had two puppies. And I wrote back and I said, well, I have to see the puppies. <laughs> and unfortunately he was in um, Hawaii at the time or somewhere, but he sent me back a really nice picture which is in the book. And I thought really long and hard about putting this in the book because it's just so easy to pick apart. It's you know like low-hanging fruit on the legend uh, in the legend tree. And I thought, well, actually, it it's so mythic, and there are so many instances. Again, it's a multi-civilization, multi-time span when every culture has some kind of a record, or or a story, or um, you know religious canon about something coming from above us mating with something here and getting something different, mm. something mm. that was special. You know, it's just in every single, I could yeah. go down the list, I'm sure you can all, all think of them, I've got a few in, in the book, but I thought, and here's somebody who had an experience, he said, and he said, you know, he said, I used to smoke weed, but I hadn't for years, and you know, there was nothing influencing me, it was daylight, he saw the whole thing, and I thought, well, this is exactly what I'm looking for, so it made the book. Yeah, and I'm I'm really thankful that people are willing to step forward and share yeah. this and testimony he let his because name be known even yeah yeah because you know it, it makes you wonder like if these are the people sharing the information right how many other people are out there that that know what they saw but just were a little too afraid to share it you know or didn't know someone like Linda that's and I'm sure I'm sure that's the majority of sightings yeah I really am because so many people. Um, they'll, they'll wait, especially the ones who've waited like 20, 30, 40 years to tell anybody. Mm -hmm. and, and they say, you know, I might never have told anyone because I just didn't want to be called crazy. You know, people don't like yeah. that. So. And I, I think also those ones are interesting because they say it might have been 20, 30, 40 years ago, but I remember it right. clear as a bell because it was such a strange thing and makes such an impression on you. You're right. not going to forget it. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, was, I was on a Coast to Coast with George Norrie the other night. And for some reason, when people started calling in, almost every single one was somebody who had had their experience as a fairly young child. But they said exactly mm. what you just mentioned. I remember all the details so clearly, everything, the colors, you know, and it, in every instance, they said, affected their lives to this day. Wow. That's amazing. Well, Linda, we're coming up on an hour here. So um, before we get to the Q&A section of the evening, I just wanted to thank you again so much for being such a wonderful sounding board and for uh, having such an open mind and for organizing all of these stories and tales. And and yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And after reading the book, I just, you know, after reading story after story after story, I have to say that it really, it got me thinking differently too, because it got me thinking 
I need to get out there because there's stuff out there and I, I'm curious about all these things and I would love to see something like that, but it, it sort of gives you more faith that like this stuff is really going on. We don't know what it is necessarily, people but... People are seeing it. You know, yeah. People are seeing these things. I don't claim to know what any of them are, even though I've, I've had my own experience seeing what I can't explain as other than Bigfoot, but we still don't really know. It's yeah. not like we have any of them you know, in front of us that we can you know, drug and take a few blood samples from and, you know, find, find out definitively. Right. But they are something, they are, they are a phenomenon. These people are not crazy. They're not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've had a couple um, that I thought were making it up, you know, and I do try and vet people as best as I can. I don't have, um, you know, any sort of lie detecting equipment. Yeah. <laughs> it costs about $1,000 to have one, wow. something like that done. So I obviously can't do that. But, you know, I kind of have my ways when I interview people and having 10 years at the newspaper interviewing two or three people a week, you know. Your instincts the, the number, good. The numbers, yeah, my spidey senses, you know, were honed there. Yeah, so. but just seeing so many stories together like that, it just, it really is very convincing and it's, it's exciting to, to think about all the possibilities out there. And so I just want to thank you and, and again, congratulate you on your book and I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it, and Thank you. also always enjoy talking with you. And um, I just wanted to mention too that Linda has been a guest on my podcast several times, and your episodes are some of our most popular episodes and most downloaded episodes. So yeah, thank you for that. You will. And I have some special bookmarks here tonight with those episodes if you're interested in um, listening to Linda dive more deeply even into some of the stories in our previous conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, some of those podcast episodes just go strange places that I've never heard <laughs> about before. They do. You know, or, or they'll get me going on philosophy or, you know, other other roads on That's travel. That's what we love. Yeah. yeah, and I like those too because, you know, otherwise it's kind of this saying, okay, it was, I was walking Bray Road, you know, it was the people here, da 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 Yeah. And I, I love it when I can just kind of go out into other... Tangents. Tangents, right. Definitely. And that, this book goes on to, on to tangents, but they asked me to do it. It's so. a great variety is the thing, because, you know... It, it is. Just and, something for everyone. <laughs> a cryptid for everyone. There you go. Um, I like that. Can I put that on a t-shirt? Yeah, please. Yeah, please do. Hey guys, Mike here. I just want to thank Wendy and Linda for doing such a great job on a really fun and interesting live discussion of Linda's new awesome book, I Know What I Saw. Now, with a great title like that, we didn't have to reach too far into the well of inspiration to come up with our own song by that name. Now here's Sunspot with I Know What I Saw. Stalking from the murk came something strange And in a second everything changed A walking nightmare, sudden abnormality A chimera that broke my reality You might say impossible when I was struck dumb with awe It might break all the natural law But I know what I saw Impossible when I was 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. And I don't want to forget to thank our wonderful Patreon community. You guys are making See You on the Other Side. Our live events, songs, podcast discussions, videos, the kind of stuff we do every week, you guys make it all possible. And a special thanks to Dr. Ned. He's at the level of a Patreon supporter that gets a shout-out in every single episode. Dr. Ned, your support is absolutely essential, and we thank you so much. Now, we're doing a hangout this Thursday with our Patreon, 7.30 p.m. Central Time, where we'll be talking about paranormal stories, horror movies, um, you know, the latest stuff you find on the web, just any kind of no-holds-barred paranormal discussion. And we'd love to do that with you. So if you're interested, just go to othersidepodcast.com slash donate, join the Patreon community, and you can jump on Thursday's call. That's othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Anyway, thanks, guys, and we'll see you on the other side. Higgledy-piggledy.